Well, good morning. If you'll reach for your Bibles with me as we prepare for this morning's scripture reading. And turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 as Pastor Bruce continues with the series on Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, we'll be starting in verse 10. If you're in need of a pew Bible, there should be one located in front of you. You can find today's scripture reading on page 10. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10, and we'll be reading through chapter 13, verse 4. Follow along as I read. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that they had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Father, Lord, we come, Lord. And Father, we come with humble hearts. Father, I thank you for each person that is here, Lord. No matter where they have been in life, no matter what they have done, Father, we are thankful they are here. And Lord, we as a congregation, we as your people want to hear from you today. So open our hearts. May they be focused on you and your word alone this morning during this hour. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, again, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. As we continue in our series in the life of Abraham, God of promise, and a life of faith. Let's begin with a question here this morning, and that is, have you ever made a mess of your life? Now, I don't mean have you ever gotten into a mess. Sometimes we end up in a mess because, well, we just can't avoid it. But sometimes, in fact, maybe oftentimes, we make a mess of our lives out of our our own decisions, our own actions. Sometimes we can do incredibly dumb, stupid things. We can sin majorly. We can fail royally. And the fallout can be so messy that only God can clean it up. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Maybe perhaps you know it from experience in your own life. You're not alone if that is the case. Join in with Abraham. He made a big, big mess of his life here in Genesis 12. In fact, 
the mess is so big that only God can clean it up. Now, so far in our study of the life of Abraham, we've seen that he is a, a, a pagan idol worshiper who, who responded to the call of God on his life to follow God. And Abraham immediately forsaked everything, and he begins to live a life of faith following the Lord, a life of worship. And so Abraham trusted God. He trusted his promises of blessing. He left everything behind to go to the land of Canaan, where he began to live as a sojourner in the world and as a worshiper before the Lord. And so Abraham starts off here in Genesis 12 as this man of faith. In fact, great faith even. Incredible faith. But now here in the middle of Genesis 12, we see him acting as a man of fear. And in the process, he made a big mess of his life. Abraham's faith in God's promises, yes, there's no doubt as we saw last Sunday, his faith fueled his pilgrimage in the land of Canaan. But it wasn't long before his faith turned into fear here in the land of Canaan. This is one of the great things that I personally love about God's Word, the Scriptures. It's, it's so realistic. In fact, the biblical writers, they, they do not whitewash the heroes that we read about in the Scriptures. They, they actually record the lives of these deeply flawed men and women who fell miserably in their walk with the Lord. Now, I, I relate to that. I don't know if you do, but I do because, well, after all, that's my life, and, and I'm guessing that's probably your life as well. And so while Abraham is certainly a, a man of faith, he is also a man of fear at this point in his journey when he is confronted with a test that now challenges his faith in God. In fact, this divine test exposes Abraham's default response to crisis. In fact, notice this in your notes. Everyone has a default response when confronted with a test that challenges our faith. Now, Abraham's default response was this. I can handle it on my own. I can handle this crisis I can handle this problem, this test, this difficulty, whatever you want to call it. His whole default mechanism was, I can handle this on my own. I can, I can work it out on my own. I don't need anybody's help, and especially God's help. This default response now was motivated by self-preservation on Abraham's part. It's a, it's a self-reliant response that, that we, even here today, that we still use to handle problems in our life. But here's the bigger problem of that. It's nothing more than a coping mechanism that keeps us from trusting God when we're confronted with that crisis. You see, Abraham's failure of faith here is really nothing more than the story of how to make a mess of your life when you're confronted with a test and now out of fear, you try to handle that test on your own apart from God. You see, Abraham assumes that he can handle this on his own. And so launching out on his own, he quickly goes from good to bad to worse. In fact, he digs a hole so deep that only God can get him out now. But that's when we see 
Yes, right here at the end of the story in Genesis 12, that's when we see the faithfulness of God in Abraham's life. Notice this. When Abraham was fearful in his life, we might even say when he was faithless in his life, God was faithful to restore him and fulfill his promises to him. And so remember, God's promises to bless Abraham so that he would be a blessing. That was all part of God's plan of salvation among all the peoples in the world. And so if you step back here of this immediate story in the context of Genesis 12, where Abraham makes a mess of his life, and you step back and see the bigger storyline of God's word, what we see here is God is protecting his plan of salvation. And he's doing so through divine intervention when Abraham jeopardized it by making a mess of his life. And what we take away from that is this. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, can stop God's plan to save a people from all nations, tongues, and tribes for himself, that they would be his people and he would be their God. Nothing in history can stop that plan. Not even Abraham's fearfulness and faithfulness. Not even his failure of faith. And oh, should that bring us great comfort and confidence even today. With that in mind, let us unpack the story of Abraham's big mess that he made. Notice the lessons that we here can learn from it when we are confronted with a test of faith in our own lives. So the first lesson we see is, number one, when we try to handle it on our own, we make a mess of our life. When we try to handle that test, that crisis, that problem, whatever it is, when we try to handle it on our own, we make a mess of our lives. So understand, at this point in Abraham's life, listen, as we just saw last Sunday, he is pitching his tent, he is building his altar. Everything is seemingly going rather well for Abraham. And then, bang, God interrupts his life with a trial that actually tests his faith. Look what it says here in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Oh, that is how God works in our own lives. Life is going, we might say, good, not a whole lot of problems, and then now in life, I'm facing a famine in my life. And notice, this is a test for Abraham. Notice, Abraham's faith was tested by this famine in the land of Canaan. And this word famine here, it, all, it just means hunger. And you can understand why it would mean that. This cause of this famine, could not, it could have been caused by a drought, maybe diseased crops, a plague of locusts, or a felled harvest. And listen, famines were not uncommon in this area of the world. Canaan is in the land of Canaan. And as a newcomer to the land, though, Abraham may not have known how frequently food became scarce in the southern part of Canaan. And so whatever Abraham might have thought about this famine, this famine represents a major test of his faith in the Lord. Now, this is not what we would expect, though, from God. After all, it's not what we would expect after such stellar demonstration of faith on Abraham's part in leaving his homeland to go to a new land. What we would expect after, after displaying such stellar faith and, and acting on that faith, 
we would expect some tangible rewards, right, for Abraham's faith. Not, not a test, not, not a famine in the land. After all, God promised to give this particular land, the land of Canaan, where there's a famine, to Abraham's descendants. And now there's this famine in the land that appears to actually threaten that promise from Abraham's perspective. But God is teaching Abraham something. And he's teaching Abraham a lesson that that we here, we all must learn in the life of faith as well. And that is trusting God does not mean the absence of trials. It does not mean the absence of trials when we trust God and launch out in a life of faith. We learn here that faith is followed by what? A famine. In fact, even a severe trial. This is always God's way. You read this throughout all of Scripture. Faith is always tested. The tests may not come as immediate as Abraham's, but they always come sooner or later. And God uses these tests to to show us where we need to grow in our life of faith, where we need to grow in trusting Him. We saw this in the book of James just recently as we went through that. James chapter 1 is all about that. We see it again at the end of James chapter 5. And so how now does Abraham respond to his test of faith here? Well, make it short, he failed his test. He fails the very first test that God gives him when he tried to handle it on his own and he made a mess of his life. In fact, he responded out of fear instead of faith here. Notice his fear. Notice what this leads him to do, what it leads him, the decisions he makes out of fear here. First of all, he flees to Egypt instead of trusting God's promises and seeking God's instruction. There's a famine in the land, and Abraham thinks to himself, I got to eat. Where's the food? Where can I find bread? And so notice his solution to this problem of famine in verse 10. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Why? For the famine was severe in the land. Now, Abraham does what seems prudent to him. He flees to Egypt when food became scarce in Canaan. And it appears that all Abraham intended to do was was just a temporary stay in Egypt until the the famine ended. After all, if if he intended a permanent leaving of Canaan, he he just would have went back home to Haran. But he doesn't. He he goes to Egypt. I think it's it's just, in his mind, a temporary thing until the famine ends. After all, it was also very common in that day for people to flee to Egypt during such times of crisis like a famine. And so Abraham did the, the logical thing. He actually does the natural thing in order to survive. He flees to Egypt. But therein lies the very problem. There is absolutely no mention in the text here that he sought God's will in the matter. Nothing. Crickets. Abraham takes matters into his own hands without consulting God at the altar that he just built between Bethel and Ai. At this point, his fear of starvation was greater than his trust in God. 
And so instead of seeking God's instruction in the crisis, he pushed the panic button. And he flees to Egypt to escape the uncertainty of the famine in Canaan rather than trusting in the certainty of God's promises. Joyce Baldwin, commentator on the book of Genesis, writes, and I quote, he says, in view of the fact that Abraham knew he was in the land of promise, to leave it so promptly the minute difficulty loomed ahead has every appearance of an unbelieving flight from circumstantial difficulty, a desertion of faith in favor of logic. He hereby lost the opportunity to discover that the Lord could provide for his people, not only in a land, but also necessary food. Now the question is, was was this a sin for Abraham to do what he did? Was it a sin for Abraham to, to flee to Egypt? After all, the text does not come out and explicitly say that he disobeyed God. And so Abraham's fleeing to Egypt was not so much an, an intentional sin as it was a default response to rely on himself. We can relate to this. Oh, we can relate to this. You see, it's not that Abraham denied God. It's not that he just outright denied God, denied his faith in God, abandoned God. It wasn't that. He simply ignored God in the time of crisis and decided to handle this famine on his own apart from God. You see, most of the time in the Old Testament scriptures, when God's people go down to Egypt, it's an indication that they are are choosing to trust the resources of the world rather than choosing to trust God in his promises. We see this as the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 31.1. Listen to what he says. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And Isaiah says, woe to them. And Abraham's getting ready to find out that the hard way, that woe. You see, in this particular situation in his life, help, his help was not at the silos in Egypt, the the storehouses in Egypt. His help was at the altar in Canaan, trusting in his God a promise to provide for him. It appears that Abraham's decision to flee Egypt is is working out for the good here in the immediate. But instead of leaving a crisis in Canaan, what we find now is he now faces another crisis in Egypt. And this is where Abraham starts to to really make a mess of his life. Notice number second here. Abraham resorts to deception in Egypt instead of relying on God's protection. You see, the problem with going down to Egypt was that Abraham was married to a rather beautiful woman. And so he resorts to deception in order to save his own life. Notice what happens in verse 11 through 13. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, 
Oh, honey, listen, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me because they will let you live. So say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So as Abraham is about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarah, I know that you're so beautiful in appearance. Sarah, you're, you're so beautiful. In fact, it's dangerous to me you're so beautiful. So just say that you're my sister. And by the way, it's interesting. This is actually the very first time Abraham is recorded in the Bible as speaking, talking. First time he's, his words are recorded and his very first words spoken complimented his wife on how beautiful she was. Husbands, take your cue from that or not. I don't know. It's up to you. But evidently, Sarah was a knockout. And this presented a serious problem in Egypt for Abraham. And so Abraham sets up this scheme for fear of being knocked off so his wife could be taken from him. You see, Sarah's eye-stopping beauty, no doubt, dazzled the Egyptians, and that could be a problem. Abraham had substantial reason to fear for his life. In fact, it, it seems that from what Abraham knew of Egyptian culture, that he was sure that when the Egyptians saw Sarah, they would liquidate him as his husband in order to take her as one of their wives. But this danger, well, it could be alleviated if Sarah simply said that she was Abraham's sister. After all, technically, that was partially true. Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. They had the same father, but different mothers. And so by claiming to be Sarah's brother, Abraham was hoping here to leverage the Egyptian custom to his advantage. He might be killed as her husband, but ancient laws made him now the guardian of her as her brother. And now anyone that's interested in taking Sarah as a wife would have to do what? Well, they got to negotiate with Abraham giving him time now to plan his escape from Egypt back to Canaan. And besides, it was just a little half-wide. Abraham, could, he could ease his conscience by saying, quote, truthfully, that she was his sister. Pretty smart, right? Or so it seemed. Abraham probably congratulated himself on, on being so clever in this situation, but it was meant as an intentional deception. And so make no mistake about this, Abraham clearly intended to deceive in order to save his own life. It's actually pretty selfish on Abraham's part. Would you agree? He's looking out for himself, not his wife. He's not protecting her. He's not protecting his marriage. He is looking out for uno numeral number one himself. Abraham is not looking so good right here. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Again, quoting Joyce Baldwin, he, he writes this, with a brutal disregard for Sarah. In a total lapse of faith in the Lord, Abraham resorted to deceit in order to save his own skin. It's actually pretty low on his part. Abraham feels he, he must somehow protect himself. And in his fear, he thinks that his only option, his only recourse here 
is deception. Ray Stedman, pastor and author, a few years back, he writes this, and I quote, he says, this is the first result of moving out of Canaan and out of fellowship with the Lord. When we leave the promised land and move away from the tent and the altar, the old self comes to the fore and it assumes control of our lives. The immediate result is is hypocrisy and deceit. And perhaps you have found this to be true in your own life. The moment you, you move away from depending on the Lord, That old self rears its ugly head. Your old way of thinking, that that world's way of thinking, our culture's way of thinking, it asserts control of our lives, and you soon find yourself now mired in deception. You see, Abraham's biggest problem with his scheme is that it was rooted in fear and not in faith. Abraham, at this point, right now, he's, he's actually, he is living as if God, the same God who had spoken to him in Ur, the same God who had promised those incredible blessings, the same God who led him to the land of Canaan, the same God who appeared to him in a vision and promised the land to his descendants, the same God, he's living as if that God does not exist now. As Kent Hughes puts it, God was not in the driver's seat. Abraham was. And I'm like, oh, oh, I can relate to that. We all can relate to that. That is our struggle in this life of faith. Is when we, we say yes to God and we begin to follow God is to truly surrender our lives to God. That is always the struggle. And that's why Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to daily present ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord in full surrender to Him and His will, in submission to His ways in life of how He wants us to live. So what happens next? Well, what happens next brings us to the second lesson when facing a test of faith. When we continue to handle it on our own, we make a bigger mess of our lives. It's quite interesting here that at this point in the story, here in the second half of Genesis 12, Abraham, did you notice it? He does not stop to pray. He does not stop to seek God's will. He does not stop to ask for God's help. He just continues now to to try to handle this second crisis, the second problem, as a result of of really not trusting the Lord in the first problem. He now continues to try to handle it on his own. And his problems now only get worse once he's now in Egypt. Look at it. Look at verses 14 through 16. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princesses of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep 
oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So here's the result of Abraham's deception. Abraham's deceptive scheme, we might put it this way, plain and simple, it backfired. It backfired. And in backfiring, it risked his wife and it jeopardized God's promised blessing. You see, not long after Abraham arrived in Egypt, someone actually called his bluff. And the scheme backfires. And so rather than giving Abraham a little bit of wiggle room that he had hoped for and anticipated, his scheme, his ploy, now created a greater mess, a much bigger mess for him to deal with. Abraham forgot one thing in his scheme. He forgot about Pharaoh. You see, the average Egyptian would happily negotiate with Abraham for his, quote, sister. But not a Pharaoh. He's a king. Abraham never thought of that. And now Sarah is part of Pharaoh's harem. And then this ironic moral twist, Pharaoh is so pleased with Sarah that it actually made Abraham a very rich man, giving him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. And so, so just picture this here. Here is fearful and faithfulest Abraham, inundated with wealth and riches from Pharaoh, while his wife spent frantic days and sleepless nights in Pharaoh's harem. Do do you think just for a little bit that Abraham's conscience is just working overtime? Again, the, the major problem here is not so much Abraham's deception, but his failure of faith. You see, he failed to trust the promises of God. He failed to rub those promises into his circumstances. Instead of rubbing them in, he rubbed them right out and did his own thing and trusted his own own cleverness. And specifically, he failed to... He failed to to trust the promise that God made in the very first part back in verse 3. That protection clause of the blessing, of the promise, where, where God told him, listen, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. So, So how do you think Abraham should have approached the matter here? Well, Del Davis writes, He should have said to Sarah, my dear, I know you're a real doll, and that could be a problem in Egypt. But we have the promise from God. And even though this sojourn in Egypt carries some risk, we must simply lean on God's promise and commit our safety to him. You see, the promise of God should have cast out the fear of man in this situation. But Abraham failed to lean on that promise. It's almost as if he says to himself, no, no, God's promise is not enough. I need more than this. In fact, this calls for my ingenuity. I can't even pronounce that word, ingenuity. Is that right? There you go. So now Abraham, listen, he is left with no good options. In fact, he only has two options, and they're both bad. Option number one, he can tell the truth to Pharaoh. Listen, Pharaoh, she's only my half-sister, but she's really my wife. 
and Pharaoh more than likely will kill Abraham and marry Sarah. Great option, right? Option number two, he can continue on with the scheme. Abraham will live, Sarah will live, but they will never be reunited again as husband and wife. So this day in Egypt, Abraham, we might say it this way, he made a royal mess of his life. In fact, he dug a hole so deep here now that he can't even see out of it. And by the time they took Sarah into Pharaoh's harem, Abraham is now probably thinking to himself, what have I gotten myself into? Listen, there is no way out of this. And perhaps, just perhaps you're here this morning, and that's crossing your own mind. And you're thinking the same thing to yourself as Abraham. You've made a mess of your life, and you're wondering, is there any hope? Is there life beyond this mess? Well, I've got great news for you this morning. Oh, have I got great news. Listen, number three, when we turn to the Lord, there is life beyond the mess. Notice the first three words here in verse 17. These three words are amazing. They are words of grace. They are words of power. They are everything. The first three words of verse 17, look at it, but the Lord. But the Lord. And that but there, it signifies a contrast from everything that's happened prior. And so what you have prior is Abraham handling this on his own. But the Lord now, the Lord begins to take over. The Lord begins to intervene, and that's what we see. These are the three greatest words in Abraham's life, and they can become the three greatest words in your life. When we turn to the Lord, there is life beyond the mess. Notice it, how this played out in Abraham's life. For Abraham, look at it, number one, first of all, God rescued Abraham, and he did so through a very gracious intervention. Look how God intervened in verse 17. But the Lord, and notice what he did. He afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. Now, I personally don't think the plagues here, they're not meant so much as a punishment on Pharaoh. As much as these were God's means of protecting Sarah and actually preserving Pharaoh's house from even worse judgment. You see, the plagues were were God's way of staying true to his promise in verse 3, which stated bluntly, you mess with Abraham, you answer to me. And now God is intervening on Abraham's behalf and Sarah's behalf. And in this act of, of, of astonishing grace, undeserved grace, God God is now looking out for Abraham, even when Abraham was looking out for himself. It's amazing. But more importantly, God was protecting the promised blessing of Abraham's seed through his divine intervention in this particular situation. And this, what we read here in the context of Abraham's life, should produce much 
hope within our own lives. It should produce hope for God's people, knowing that His plan of salvation does not rest on our flimsy, fickle faith, but solely on God's faithfulness to His promises. Amen to that, right? And so God rescued Abraham. And He did so when Abraham did not deserve it. He didn't deserve God choosing him and calling him, and now he does not deserve this. It is strictly an act of God's grace to Abraham in response to his faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham. Why? Because God has a plan to save a people for himself, and nothing can stop that plan. But we also see number two here. Pharaoh rebuked Abraham and then expelled him from Egypt. Now remember, God called Abraham, this is interesting, to be a blessing wherever he goes to all the people around him. But but when Abraham went to Egypt, he becomes what? He actually became a curse instead of a blessing, specifically to Pharaoh and his household. So it is no surprise that after discovering the truth about Sarah that we now read in verses 18 through 20, so Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And I personally believe here that God protected Sarah and her purity and their marriage as well when he intervened to rescue Abraham. As one commentator writes, the words of Pharaoh need not be interpreted to mean that there had been sexual contact. He simply stated that he took her for a wife in in a royal household. It would take time for her to come before Pharaoh. Remember the story of Esther. It took 12 months before she came before the king. Moreover, the statement, here is your wife, strongly suggests that she was returned unharmed as Abraham's wife. But picture this with me. Here's Abraham. He is standing before Pharaoh, a pagan king, and he is standing silently. He doesn't utter a single word to this king. In fact, in this moment here, Pharaoh actually demonstrates more character and better morals than Abraham. How embarrassing. It should have been Abraham who who taught Pharaoh about God and his ways. But now Abraham has forfeited his testimony as a witness to the God of promise in this situation. And the great irony of this story is that, that God actually uses a pagan king to royally rebuke Abraham and to royally escort him out of Egypt. Which brings us to this last point here. Abraham returned to the place of his altar in Canaan. So Abraham was kicked out of Egypt, and where did he go? Listen, it is not by accident that he returns back north to the promised land. He returns back to Canaan. 
In fact, look what it says again in Genesis 13, the first part, the first four verses. We won't dwell heavily on these verses as Pastor Chris will tackle Genesis 13 next Sunday. It says, so Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Geb as far as Bethel to, listen, notice it, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And so note with me here that Abraham returned to the place, get this, the place of his departure away from God into the place of his dependence on God. In other words, Abraham returns to his altar at Bethel. And what does he do when he gets there? He calls on the name of the Lord. And I can't help it. When he's calling on the name of the Lord, he is repenting. He is asking forgiveness. He is sorrowful. He is whatever you want to call it. Most of all, repentful. He is begging God, don't don't forsake your promises to me, Lord. I messed up big time, and in your grace, you got me out of my mess that I didn't deserve. He is rehashing to God all the promises that God made to him. Del Davis rightly says this. It's as if Abraham is, is now purposely going back to start all over again. It's as if his geography is an expression of his repentance. And so we see here another important principle in the life of Abraham that is just as true for you and I here this morning. And that is repentance, true repentance of heart, always, always, always requires returning to the Lord and to a life of worship in dependence of the Lord. And so we see. Oh, we see. Because the great thing about the life of Abraham, it is actually a mirror of reality of our lives. And in this mirror of reality, here in the context of this story, we see in Abraham's failure of faith that when we turn to the Lord in repentance, there is, hallelujah, life beyond the mess. But more than that, greater than that, we see God's amazing grace in Abraham's failure, right? Amen? Are you, does that excite you? It ought to, because your life is Abraham's life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Abraham had blown it. He had faltered in his faith. He had failed this first test from God. But God, notice this, God in grace did not give up on Abraham. This is astonishing to me. God God does not tell Abraham, listen, dude, you have blown it. You've blown your opportunity here. I'm going to go find a, a better servant, somebody who can carry these promises better than you because very first test I give you, you falter in it. Your failure of faith led to a huge mess that I had to clean up. But God doesn't do that here. You don't read that in this life. In his grace, God rescued Abraham from his mess and in astonishing grace even blessed him despite his lack of trust. 
And yes, oh yes, there were consequences. God's grace never, never negates the consequences. There were consequences for Abraham's failure of faith. But in his grace, listen to me, God also allowed these these consequences of his choices to actually become a means of instruction in his life so that Abraham could now grow from them. So what do we learn about the consequences of Abraham's failure of faith? Let me quickly just highlight these for you. Number one, some consequences are immediate while others are delayed. You see, it appears Abraham walked away from this mess very rich and smelling like a rose. Does it not? Does that not strike you as a little odd? Now, it is very true. He did get rich from Pharaoh, no doubt about it. But he certainly didn't smell like a rose to his wife or to Pharaoh. In fact, later, as Pastor Chris will, will, will talk about next Sunday, chapter 13, you find that Abraham and Lot are duking it out. Their herdsmen are fighting it out. Why? Because of their riches and It was a big enough fight that it caused them to separate. But remember, God has already promised that he would make Abraham rich. But instead of waiting on God, what does Abraham do? He gets rich through deception, and it causes more problems down the road for him. So please, please do not equate riches with the blessing of God. It is not always and equal. We learn from Scripture that riches are a snare oftentimes to the life of a sojourner. So just because Abraham walked away rich doesn't necessarily mean that that was, oh man, give me that life. No, it caused some major problems for him down the road. So Here's the point. Rarely do we feel the full impact of our consequences immediately. Most of the time, our consequences are experienced sometime later down the road. Number two, few consequences affect one person, while most affect many people. You see, part of Pharaoh's payoff to Abraham also included a maidservant. Anybody guess by the name of Hagar. If you know the story of Abraham, you know how that turned out. If you want to find out, just read Genesis 16. And Hagar presents huge problems for both Abraham and Sarah, and let me tell you, for the rest of the world that even is impacting us today. Genesis 16 Abraham, once again, is jumping ahead of God's will. He's trying to handle another problem on his own, fulfilling God's promise of a family through this maidservant, Hagar, with her son, Ishmael. And Hagar becomes the mother of the Arab nations, and Sarah becomes the mother of the Jewish nations. And the fighting between these two nations is rooted in the fighting that took place between Hagar, this maidservant, and Sarah. And the consequences are still being felt by the whole world today rooted right here. So understand something. When you make a mess of your life, it rarely affects 
just you. It almost always affects other people. And most of the time, it's the people closest to you. Which brings us to the third lesson. All consequences serve as reminders of what happens when we handle tests without God. I can't help but believe that God used these consequences in Abraham's life as a, as a reminder of that day that he failed to trust God when he encountered the famine in the land. Consequences, though, are not without a purpose in life. Listen, consequences serve a purpose in our lives. Consequences are are reminders to us of what happens when we handle tests apart from God, when we handle them on our own. And so let us learn from our failures of faith that the messes we make of our lives, that we can look back on them and say, yeah, that was when I failed God. Not going to do that again. By the grace of God, I'm going to trust you, Lord. As Paul reminds us in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So let me summarize everything we've learned here this morning. It's at the bottom of your notes, coming up on the screen. We might say it this way in summary. When it comes to facing your family, trusting God does not mean the absence of trials. And failing God does not mean the absence of grace. Aren't you thankful for that? But when we fail in our faith, we must return to the Lord who is able to restore life beyond the mess. So if you're in a mess here this morning and you're wondering, is there life beyond this mess that I find myself in? The answer really is dependent upon you and your choice right now. Will you continue to try to handle that mess on your own, apart from the Lord, or will you humble yourself and in repentance return to the Lord, where he or who, he is the able one who can help us and restore us and give us life beyond the mess, not free from the consequences but, oh, let me tell you, a much better life if we continue to try to handle it on our own. With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mirror of your word and how this part of Abraham's life reflects the reality of our own lives. Father, forgive us for trusting in ourselves rather than living in faith when we encounter trials that test our faith. So help us to see the folly of trying to face our famines on our own apart from you. And and Lord, when we do, would you grant us the grace to return to you knowing that there is forgiveness, that there is restoration in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.